Hi, and welcome to the Missions Podcast. My name is Alex Kochman, Director of Long-Term Missionary Mobilization for ABWE International, joined in studio here with Scott Dunford. And we have a special guest coming to us today from Nashville, Tennessee, who, whether he realizes it or not, is probably at least partially responsible um, for the inception of the Missions Podcast, thanks to uh, some some advice and feedback that we were able to get, because he's also an experienced podcaster, but that's that may or may not be how you know him. Uh, we're joined today by Barnabas Piper, uh, who you know and whose father you probably know. And uh, Barnabas is a, a reader, writer, author, speaker. He's the co-host of the Happy Rant podcast. He's also the marketing manager for B&H Academic and for Word Search Bible Software. Uh, so he's written a lot online and in print, and you're probably familiar with what he's written. He's written The Pastor's Kid. He's recently written a book on uh, curiosity. He's written a great book on doubt. He's based in Nashville, uh, and yet, of course, as a as a Minnesota native, he's a Vikings fan. And so uh, he and Scott are going to have some things to talk about, potentially. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you can follow him on Twitter at, at Barnabas Piper. But uh, Barnabas, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. And uh, what we wanted to do really is um, not just have a conversation, you know, on one specific missions related topic. We wanted to hit a couple different things with you uh, and we thank you for joining us. But, uh, you know, I think one thing that's important, Scott, we have how many missionary kids would you say that we have that we interact with in the ABWE world? Oh, man, hundreds, close to a thousand, close to thousands. We have over a thousand missionaries between short and long term. But then you start imagining how many children are out there. It's it's many. And uh, and, if we, and if we know missionary families, <laughs> if they're good at anything, they're very good at having children and fulfilling the cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> right. And so uh, thinking through just some of the unique pressures that they're under. Um, I was working with a couple that was focused on doing MK care, especially uh, people coming off of the field. And, and, you know, there's some problems that all MKs face, whether they're missionary kids, whether they're just ministry kids in general, whether they're PKs, pastor's kids. And so, Barnabas, I know you have a lot of unique experiences and insights that you can probably share about that. But um, first of all, for someone who maybe isn't familiar with you, can you just, uh, you know, give us kind of a... You know, 30 seconds about yourself, your bio, what you're doing now. Uh, you know, they've probably heard of John Piper, but uh, they're probably wondering, you know, what about you and your ministry and all those sorts of things. So start us out with some of that if you can. Yeah, I would simply say if you're familiar with John Piper, uh, please try very hard to separate what you know of him <laughs> from what you will hear from me, not out of any sense of spite, but just because uh, we're different flavors. Let's put it that way. Um, so. I grew up in Minneapolis, as you guys mentioned in the intro, son of John Piper. I'm the fourth of four boys, and then we have a younger sister as well, so one of five kids. My dad retired from the pastorate at Bethlehem Baptist Church on my 30th birthday. So all of my formative years and then several years beyond that were spent very much as a pastor's kid. And then because of his ministry and the extent of it, kind of living in that same it's sort of that same milieu as time has gone on because people are so familiar with him, his writing, his speaking, and that still continues to, to be something that people, they kind of see me through that lens, especially when they first meet me and before I've scared them away with my sense of humor or whatever else. Um, I, I went to college at Wheaton and then worked in publishing. So I worked at a couple of different Christian publishers in the Chicago area 
uh, which turned into a great combination for me of, I love books. I love writing. I love reading. I also love business and strategy and marketing. And so being able to combine those two in a, in a really, it's, it's a, it's a rare industry. It's kind of, it's fun for me. It's a good fit. And then in 2013 moved to Nashville to work for Lifeway Christian Resources, first in leadership development, and then now back in publishing with B&H Academic and Word Search. And then along the way, I uh, started writing. So I started blogging in 2011, I think it was, and then wrote for World Magazine's website for a while, and then wrote the Pastor's Kid book that came out in 2014, wrote Help My Unbelief, book on faith and doubt that came out in 2015, and then The Curious Christian just came out last year. And kind of chewing on ideas for my next book, but nothing in the works. Um, I just write ideas that I fall in love with and kind of can't shake. And so that's, that's a little bit about me. And then probably by the time you're done writing the manuscript, you're probably sick of the topic. Um, by the time, yeah, by the time, well, when I'm done writing it, I usually feel pretty good. I, I feel like I've said everything I had to say. Then you get to the marketing part. And that's, <laughs> when, that's when authors get really sick of their own books because they get asked these questions about it that are by people who have never read the book or like, you're like, just read it. It's on page six. Like you can, it's, it's all right there. I don't need to, or people who say, Hey, can you write four additional original blog posts? I'm like, I just wrote an entire <laughs> book. Why do you need additional blog posts? Um, so it's the marketing process that makes authors hate their own books. Actually. I just want to mention to our listeners, uh, you, sh- you really need to check out um, not only his books. Um, I've, I've read The Pastor's Kid, which is super helpful. I know a lot of pastors who've read it and it's really caused them to rethink how they how they interact with their, their own children. I think church members need to listen to it or read it, um, as well as your book on doubt. Very helpful. But I also want to recommend like for mis- missionaries, listening to the five leadership questions is has been super helpful to me. It's uh, and it actually, as we were talking even about this podcast, not, I don't want to say that we do it exactly like that, but I love the inception of or the concept of, of being able to just kind of pick the brain of leaders and and kind of follow that conversation where it goes and how we can kind of just build on some of those ideas. Uh, but I want to circle back around uh, to to you described your growing up in ministry um, in some ways, at least for those of us who grew up in the upper Midwest, um, really at an epicenter of ministry. I mean, John Piper is a well-known speaker, a well-known pastor. I mean, I can remember, uh, you know, getting my one day CD and hearing, you know, mm. some of those messages for the first time. And yet I know I've been in Christian ministry long enough to know that when you're in those roles, you see the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. Um, you know, you know more than probably most do about, um, you know, Christian celebrity and the, the, the pitfalls of that. So, a question for you is, you know, how do you become, how do you keep from becoming jaded as you're involved in ministry, especially as, as you're, it may be advice to a parent who's raising children in ministry context, um, trying to shield them or not shield them from those things, or, or maybe uh, someone who's grown up in a ministry context, who's struggling with um, the fact that people are fallen and uh, people that some people put on a pedestal are, are sometimes really broken too. Well, I think, I think that mindset is actually a really helpful way to not be jaded. The (laughs) idea that you just, you look at everybody, literally everyone, including those who are in the pulpit or, you know, doing the Bible translation or whatever it is. And you say, they're as fallen as I am. Hmm. They're as fallen as, as the worst pagan is. 
the only difference between a righteous person and an unrighteous person is what Christ has done for them. And so, but I say that kind of with 2020 hindsight, um, meaning that <laughs> I, I have spent plenty of time being jaded. Jaded comes very naturally to me. I have a, a sort of acerbic, sarcastic sense of humor, cynicism, would be something that uh, that I gravitate towards very naturally. Um, I'm and, I'm shocked. I don't know if I can handle what I'm hearing right now. I, <laughs> I'm so, yeah, so so sorry. You're so shattering sorry. my pedestal view. Of <laughs> I'm I'm not. Yes, I'm knocking myself off the pedestal. If there was one, it was a very short pedestal, a bit, bit more like a step stool, if anything. Um, but so I mean, I've spent plenty of time being being jaded, but. It really helped me also that uh, my dad didn't ever position himself as anything that he wasn't. So it it still strikes me as odd when I watch people deify him because, well, par- partly because that's just weird. Uh, and people do it in very weird ways, but partly because <laughs> will you never, sign my Bible? Himself. <laughs> yeah. What's that? What's it? Will you sign my Bible? <laughs> Just joking. Yeah. Yeah. You know, amongst other things. I remember the first time I, the first, so I, after I moved away from home, so I grew up volunteering at their pastors conferences that, that they held every year. And it was, it started really small, you know, be a hundred, 200 guys, sort of a regional thing. By the time I graduated from high school is maybe 800 or a thousand pastors. And then when I came back after college, um, we brought, we brought a group of students uh, from a high school ministry there. And, And, you know, so it's, maybe 1500 pastors, so pretty good size conference, not huge. And I remember watching guys line up at the doors like an hour before the session started. And remember there's 1500 people. So this is not mm-hmm. like an arena. You can see, you can, every sight line is good. Every seat is, is close to the stage line up an hour beforehand and just race down to the front. Cause they were, they had <laughs> to be in the front row to see mm-hmm. John Piper preach. Mm-hmm. I have to say those moments were jaded moments for me. I had a yeah. lot of judgment towards those people because that was ridiculous, but I never saw my dad position himself that way. He never pretended to be anything. He was always very, very self-aware of his own failures as well as, as outspoken, you know, he was outspoken about his, his being a flawed person. And so I think that protected me from, you know, the offense of hypocrisy, feeling judgment towards him. And then also just being, having a realistic understanding of other people in his position and going, Oh, I can see through the BS. Like you're pretending to be something, but you're definitely not that. Cause I, I know what people are like. And so finding that realistic, you know, kind of ex- knowing the worst about people, but expecting the best out of God's grace kind of simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious so you, you, we see in the evangelical world, yeah, there's some jadedness, but there's also a lot of celebrity worship, as you kind of described. Do, growing up like you did, did, was that a struggle for you as well or not so much? Struggling? I mean, it's struggling in what way? Well, I mean, the idea of being awed by certain Christian leaders um, or, or, you know, you were describing guys running up front to get close to your dad and his preaching. Um, do you think growing up in ministry protected you from, from, uh, from, from that idea of like Christian celebrity, um, celebrity culture? Um, I, I think it did. I think it's, 
but I mean, I know that there are pastors, kids who are, who are celebrity worshipers of other kinds of celebrity, you know, Mm. um, athletes, actors, musicians, you know, they, they lose their minds when, you know, their, their favorite singer songwriter shows up at, you know, the local music club or whatever. And, and, and especially so, that one guy from joy electric, he's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> Ronald J. Martin himself. Um, look it up folks. Um, so I think, I think that mindset, it, you know, there, I think that's just a very human thing. People are awed by fame for whatever reason, specific to ministry though, specific to Christian celebrity being in being a minister kid, ministry kid definitely, uh, removed me from that, call it a temptation or that tendency because I just, I sat around the dinner table with people who other people were awed by, and I found them very not worthy of awe. They, they were just, there's a lot of boring pastors. There's a lot of pastors who are not as friendly as you would hope. There are some of them who are wonderful men and that just sounds like humans to me. You know, mm-hmm. some of them are jerks. Some of them are great. Right. You know, here we are. And so, yeah, I was very, I was very distant from that. And I still am like, I just am not impressed by famous Christian people mm-hmm. for being famous. I'm impressed by their, the quality of their character, but that's also true for somebody who's not famous. Yeah. Well, and there's there's so many pressures that anyone that grows up in a ministry home has, again, whether they're a pastor's kid or a missionary kid. To shift gears just a little bit slightly, uh, I, I want to ask you something, you know, John Piper is famous for, you know, particularly Don't Waste Your Life and the unique push that he's had towards missions that you don't hear a lot of missions emphasis necessarily within the uh, the newer reformed kind of world uh, of preachers and and writers and authors and speakers, um, but you know he certainly has an emphasis there. And and for for someone who's a missionary kid, for someone who's grown up, maybe their parents were on the field, maybe they've been connected in a in a church that really emphasizes that. You know, contrast that with your situation, where you know I would imagine uh, in a church like Bethlehem, growing up, hearing consistently, "Hey, be evaluating your life, go, be willing to." to die, to take the gospel to the unreached. Is that in your estimation? I mean, what, what effect does that have on someone, not just hearing that as a college student at like a, a big, you know, setting, like, like a cross conference or like a passion conference kind of thing when, when you're 18, 19, 20, but what effect does that have on you when you're hearing that when you're five, 10, 11 years old? And then maybe maybe another way to unpack this question for you, and I don't want to give you too much to answer all at once, but, you know, what are the ways that you were spoken to about missions as a child? And how is that different from what you're telling your kids now about missions as you're discipling your own children? Yeah. Yeah, that. So. The impact that the emphasis on missions that I grew up with had on me particularly, and I can't speak for everybody else who grew up in my context, but I think that, I think it it was kind of across the board, um, for, you know, for people who grew up in Bethlehem, it was just normal. It was a normal thing to, to be internationally aware, to be aware of God's working in cultures that look and sound nothing like ours, to be aware of the fact that our church supports missionaries and we knew their names, we had their pictures on the wall, we celebrated them when they, when they came back on furlough or just to visit, you know, and they would have a chance to be prayed for. Uh, every missionary who left Bethlehem, um, was commissioned, which means that a, 
a group of the church leaders, so deacons, elders, whoever was there would gather around them, lay hands on them and pray for them in a church service. And this was true when the church was 400 people, but also true when it was, you know, 2000 people. So this wasn't something that they outgrew. And all of that was just sort of part of the, the drumbeat of ministry. There it was just sort of the, the thing that, that the church marched to. Um, and then at home, my mom, especially did a profound job of, of making me internationally aware, hmm. you know, so whether it was international news stories or our church provided prayer calendars for, you know, so every week, a different missionary family would be prayed for so that it was just sort of a constant input of this is what God is doing both through people from this church, but just all over the world in different ways. We used Operation World, you know, the book that that yeah. lists unreached people groups and gives gives facts. And I mean, I just remember that was sort of a part of weekly or daily devotions at our at our home. And you know, I don't do all that stuff with my kids. Um, I feel like this might be an excuse, but I, but I feel like in a lot of ways, God has brought the nations to us. And that does not, that does not mean no more going overseas to do missions, but it means that for my kids, I want my kids to be racially aware, culturally aware and, and religiously aware because you don't don't need a book to do that now. They can just go across the street. (laughs) Right. I mean, one of my daughter's best friends is, um, is half Syrian. And, and then that girl's cousins who are full Syrian moved to the area and like they ride the bus together and they go to each other's homes and, and they just like, so there's this, there's this, uh, just influx of interaction with people who are Muslim and people who are Hindu. And, you know, one of my daughters came home and she said, I was talking to a friend and she said she didn't believe in God. And she was just baffled by that. But and that's, you know, that's just a white person from Tennessee. So there's a, f- there's that aspect of missions as well in terms of just the respect and the dignity of different cultures, different religions, different races, and then the being well-versed enough in the gospel to say, I believe in Jesus for these reasons and share that with friends in a non, like there's no enmity there. They're, they're kids who like each other. Um, and so that's been a thing that I've kind of been more focused on. Um, but I would also love to take my daughters on missions trips, you know, so to, to, to open their eyes to God in other places. Cause that was one of the most profoundly impactful things for me is the number of short-term missions trips that our church did and the number that I had a chance to go on, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't like youth group tourism, but it was a genuine being part of God's work somewhere else in the world, even if it was more observational than participatory, just seeing, I just remember the, the profound impact of seeing a, a Guatemalan church worship in their, their brand new sanctuary mm. and just being there to be part of it. So I didn't, they didn't need me there. I brought nothing to the table. I didn't understand what they were singing or saying, but God did. Mm. And that I remember at 17, that just, you know, that left an imprint on me. I, I, uh, we, we never met. Um, but I attended Bethlehem for a short time in 2001. I think it was around that time. Uh, there was some things that were going on in the church at that time that really shaped, 
a lot of my thinking about missions. Um, one, like you just described, seeing missionaries constantly coming in and and the missionaries that were going through Bethlehem or sending, being sent out were being sent up to some of the hardest places. But what I saw, this was my, just my observation. I'm curious what your perspective on it was at that time and still would be, was that it seemed like the heart for the nations in that church for missions eventually became the heart for the nations in the local community. I mean, I can, you know, I don't know what, I don't know what the name of those towers are. I always called them the Somali towers that you can see right outside the back window of Bethlehem Baptist. Cedar, Cedar Riverside. Um, but but, it's the name of the apartments, but yeah, they were, they were by, by the time, by the time, yeah, like by the time 2001 rolled around, I feel like they were probably 50 to 60% Somali residents. Wow. You know, and I, I worked down at the Pillsbury Towers. I was in seminary and I was. I Is was that how you developed your Joe Boy physique? Oh, man. Uh, but I remember <laughs> really developing great relationships with some of the other Somalians uh, that were working in our building and had good, really amazing conversations. But it seemed like the heart for missions became a heart for the nations in our in that community and and really i i can remember being not scandalized because it it wasn't a bad thing but i remember being awed and encouraged by the emphasis of the church to to move into the communities to engage because everyone that knows uh those apartment buildings would know they're, they're not the safest place in the world i mean i know friends who work down there and security guards and stuff but but to see the church engage in in racial reconciliation, engage in, 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 in Muslim ministry and by moving into those areas. Do you think that was a byproduct of missions or was it the other way around? I think, I think that was, I think the reason that the church did those things was because of the previous emphasis on foreign missions. So overseas missions, um, because, because I think that emphasis opened the the door to people being aware and being open to crossing cultures mm. in the neighborhood mm-hmm. um, or moving from the suburbs into an urban context where the cultures are different. And so, but, I, but I think, I think the, the emphasis, because the emphasis on foreign missions is not just emphasis on going to save people. Mm. That's, that's a white savior complex. Mm-hmm. It was an emphasis on, you know, if you lead me, I will follow, you know, if God calls, I will go. More on the going than the the saving. God saves, you go. Yeah. So the willingness to be used by God opens the door for people to go to hard places, whether it's four blocks away or four Mm -hmm. continents away. Yeah, no, that's, that's a, that's a powerful idea that, that we need to, to that, encourage it, churches with right because it's it, that's a recognition of the sovereignty of god there where i mean we know that god uses means we, we know that you know, god's ordained salvation for people but also that he uses the feet that go and the you know the the mouths that, that preach and proclaim but yeah the fact is you don't have to get caught up in this messianic complex like i'm going to save the world you're just obedient you just go and you can sovereignly trust god wherever that is yeah, and I, I, it's funny in, in thinking about it now in retrospect that the missionaries who our church sent, and I mean this with utmost respect, were not impressive people. Mm. You know, like they were just, they, they were regularly the most normal and plain. And like they weren't, they, they weren't like the prophetic voices and the most powerfully gifted. 
there's just a lot of humble, faithful people who God used over the course of long periods of time in hard places. And that really flies in the face of Christian celebrity mm-hmm. because, because Christian celebrity lifts up the, the powerful, the prophetic, the, those with very public gifts and, and kind of spits on or just ignores really the, the quietly faithful who are not obviously gifted, but might be a really good neighbor or, you know, a really faithful Bible translator, my aunt and uncle. So my mom's sister and brother-in-law have been with Wycliffe for decades. And, you know, they were evacuated out of different countries in Africa on at least two occasions, maybe more. Um, And neither of them are impressive people in the world's eyes, but they're, (laughs) They're lovely people. They're gifted in translation. They're faithful. They're steady. And, and God has used their work. And, and I look at that and I go, I, I am at this point in my life, I would rather be like them than, than the pastor of a mega church. Yeah. It's, it's the anti-Christian celebrity culture that that's an interesting point here. Now uh, shift gears a little bit too, um, because uh, we we don't want to just, you know, talk about your childhood, your upbringing, everything. Obviously, you're you're your own person. I think if there's anyone who wants to make sure the world knows that they're their own person, I mean, you know, certainly we'll we'll afford you that privilege too. Because I think what you're talking about, whether it's your your kids on the bus with you know friends who are Syrian or other things like that, um, that could develop. And here's your segue word here: a curiosity um, it, that you approach your Christian life with, and as you're engaging other people out and in culture and in the marketplace. Um, for those of us, for those who are listening to us, some sending pastors, some are missionaries, some are just mission-minded, regular people in their churches. What is the relationship between cultivating a habit of curiosity, which I know you would say is a lost personal discipline, and having this world Christian sort of mentality? I think I think they're inextricable. Um, I think if if you are somebody, I think if you are somebody who who has a heart for the nations or the heart for the lost or just a heart to be a good neighbor. So just to care about those in your community, that, that has to come from a place of this profound sense of, you know, seeking the image of God in other people, seeking to Mm. understand their mindset, their experiences, seeking to walk a mile in their shoes, seeking to understand things that they know that you don't. And I mean, that's ultimately, that's what curiosity is. It is, it is seeking to understand and see what you don't. Um, it's a pursuit of truth and every image bearer of God carries truth with them. So how, how do you be a, a successful invested cross-cultural missionary without profound curiosity? You have to be curious about cultures, about languages, about life experiences, about senses of morality and senses of history and senses of geography and place and, you know, all of these different aspects. Without curiosity, you just, you don't even care that those people exist. You don't care that they don't know Jesus. You don't care about their lives. You don't care about any of it. And usually a lack of curiosity comes with judgment. You know, it's much easier to just be like, oh, those people and sort of cast judgment upon them. Whereas somebody with a godly sense of curiosity says those people, you know, it's the sense of those, those fellow humans, those fellow people who need Jesus, who have needs, who are interesting and have something to teach me. 
So curiosity, like it, it drives that. It drives ministry. It drives mission. It drives relationship. All of it. It seems like for some people, when they're the thing that keeps people back from engaging with people who are different from them, or especially especially when they're talking about different belief systems, whether that's engaging with their LGBT neighbor next door or engaging with uh, a Muslim down the street, is maybe a little bit of fear. Um, so, what would you encourage someone who's who's wanting to engage uh, with someone who who's who is curious, but who is also afraid, what would your encouragement be to them to how to stay grounded while still engaging openly with others? Well, especially knowing that there's, uh, I, I think this, this need to be curious and open. Uh, it can be difficult to do that. You know, if you're, let's just say, if you have a very big God theology, if you're very rigid, maybe if you're more on the reformed side, but basically if, if you're theologically conservative, there is a temptation to only see the world in black and white. Sure. And so that can be a barrier itself. And I would say if your theology, especially if you call it big God theology, does not give you the safety and the motivation to be bold, you have a small God theology. <laughs> it's not, yeah. it's, not, yeah. it's just yeah. not a big God. Because if, if you rest in a big God, you, you have nothing to fear. No Muslim is going to persuade you to believe a thing you don't. No person of a different sexual orientation is going to change your views. And, and you, you have nothing to fear and everything to offer. And so that person, you know, your, your neighbor of a different sexual orientation, your, your coworker, who had, who is, you know, who is Hindu or Muslim or, you know, new age, they, there's a, there's a sense of, I mean, that's pure opportunity in the sense of they have nothing to say that is going to, to, to be able to move God right. out of your life. <laughs> yeah. You have things to offer as, as an image bearer of God and a mouthpiece for the gospel that very well might be, introduce them to that big God. Now, I, that being said, this is not throwing judgment at people who are fearful mm -hmm. because I'm fearful. I, I think everybody yeah. struggles with fear. It is a hard thing to overcome our, our sense of embarrassment, shame, awkwardness, all those things, but don't ever blame it on your theology. Mm. If your theology is the reason you're not telling people about Jesus, that is some messed up theology. Boom, roasted. So, so if someone though is hearing this and say, "Hey, I want to be curious. Um, I want to be able to to end, but but it, but it's not natural to me." Uh, what would be some, like some if you're an introvert, some you're steps saying. that you would encourage someone to to take that they could they could learn to be more curious than they currently are? Like if you're saying if you're if they're an introvert. That sort well, of thing. I mean, maybe I think some <laughs> introverts are curious and others aren't. Right? Um, some people are just cautious. I mean, that that's a fair that's i mean that's a fair that's kind of a fair label you know because the way that i've couched curiosity is very it sounds very sort of adventurous and relational and so people who are more, more shy and more reserved might feel that's not for them and i get that uh, and i would simply say i think god has wired curiosity into all of us hmm. um the expressions of curiosity are numerous you, you can, it's in reading, it's in relationships, it's in observing, it's in discovering. So for some people, it is going to the ends of the earth. For other people, it is in research. You know, those are, those are 
profoundly different sets of, of things that people enjoy. For some people, it's getting to know everybody in the neighborhood. And for some people, it's getting to know one neighbor. Right. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it, and that's it, one of those is not better than the other because God put that in you. You know, if God had wanted us all to have the same gifts, he would have given us all the same gifts. But the Bible says exactly the opposite. He gave some people some gifts and some people other gifts so that collectively God is reflected through the body of Christ. And, and curiosity is one of those things. And so there are people who are going to be experts on one thing and people who are going to know a little bit about a lot of things. And, and that's good. And I would simply say, if, if you're not sure where to get started, the closer to home you can start, the better, you know, whether it's a book on your shelves or a conversation with somebody you see every day, or even things is, is the funny thing about curiosity, even things as simple as like drive a different route to work so that you <laughs> see a neighborhood you haven't mm-hmm. seen, just start paying attention to what's around you, you know, whether it's, whether it's architecture or the seasons or the trees, like whatever different people are drawn to different things, but all of those are, are sparks for curiosity and curiosity begins to snowball when we invest in it. Yeah. There's so much in our world that kind of moves us away from curiosity. I was just thinking about this the other day. Um, so we live on one side of our of city of Harrisburg and everything we do is on the other side. And, um, I know so many people that don't want to drive through those bad neighborhoods and that produces like a fear when you're in a bad neighborhood. But I I've seen like just for ourselves, I hate, I hate that phrase. (laughs) Well, you know what I mean? Um, the phrase bad neighborhood. Sure. Yeah. But, but I've found like, sure. You feel, you feel a fear the first time you're experiencing something different, but if you do it often enough, it becomes more normal and you become accustomed to it. And then you begin to really see the reality behind what was something that was very fearful to you. Now you start to see the complexities of the things there. So there's something to be said about putting yourself in a different situation, maybe even a situation that challenges you and then continue to put yourself in that situation until it becomes something you're not afraid of anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's that, that's just a basic human principle of, of anything. I have a, you know, one of my daughters is, is a fearful performer. You know, she's in a dance class, but she doesn't like to get on stage and she's, you know, she's nine. And I'm like, you know what, this is the most normal thing in the world. And after you get on stage enough times, you stop being afraid. You might still feel butterflies every time, but you stop being paralyzed by fear because you realize like you just get used to it. And, Mm. you know, it becomes a normal thing. I think the same is true for anything that's risky and you, you have the experiences to draw on to say, Oh, I remember this isn't so bad, you know, mm-hmm. or when it was bad, like I got over it really fast, you know? So I told somebody about Jesus. It was a little bit awkward, but so what here I am, I'm gonna do it again. And I, you know, so whether it's, whether it's an experience of encountering a new, a new place, a new culture, having a conversation, just, I think one of the big things is just looking at fear and recognizing that when you stare at fear, you realize that most of the time it's baseless and false. Mm. It just is. Mm -hmm. If you look at it and you go, why am I afraid of X? Very rarely do you have a good reason. Most of the time it's a self-serving reason or something small that was blown out of proportion or a hypothetical that's not going to happen. And the fear is baseless. And when you can do that, you, you go, oh, 
Well, this is, this is a thing that's very doable. You know, I, I think there's, there's just a relevant example here. Me and Scott earlier were talking uh, just about the simple fact that all of our conversations out in the world are so transactional. Hmm. Um, it, just in modern American, but just Western society in general, everything's transactional. Um, maybe, you know, you're in Nashville, you have a little bit of that, uh, uh, Southern hospitality, a little bit of that, uh, fake Southern <laughs> kindness, but, but there's still, you know, generally speaking, when I ask you how you're doing, I don't really care. I'm just saying, hi, uh, I'm just acknowledging you. And, and what's, what's funny is we've lost so much of that just ability to just be in your environment and be aware of your surroundings and the people with you that we have, we have bottled up and we have commoditized regular, meaningful conversation and we have invented a media platform with it called podcasting because nobody has normal conversations anymore <laughs> but there's probably some truth in that is that you know uh, and i'm don't do this right now in fact share this episode subscribe uh, leave, but 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 when you're done when this episode's done take the earbuds out and have a conversation mm. with the person on the treadmill next to you Right. Or something like that. And no, not the treadmill. Nobody wants to be interrupted on a treadmill. Well, that's, that's true. Yeah. Well, and not at coffee shops either. But you Alex's just, body's a microchip. He's got to keep it fit. And I'm firm. literally. Yeah. A microchip. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 um, and, and to do that too, because especially if you're missions minded, you know, your, your first step might not be to cross the Atlantic. It might just be to take the earbuds out, mm-hmm. which is huge. Um, now I, I want to ask you as well, Barnabas, um, you know, just just getting back to a little bit of growing up in a home that has ministry at the center of it. Um, for those who are listening, who are missionary kids, um, as we kind of wind down, those who maybe they're coming off the field and they're struggling to assimilate back into their culture. You know, you have your own cross-cultural experience there being in Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> um, how do you how do you just stay grounded in an identity in Christ? Uh, it's a, that's a really, that's an essential question to answer for those of us who have grown up in a ministry context. Mm-hmm. And I say ministry because I, I don't, there are, there's so much overlap between a senior pastor's kid, a worship pastor's kid, a missionary kid. There's, there's just a ton of similarity. And when I wrote the pastor's kid, I, I had lots of conversations with my cousin, who's just a couple years younger than me. And he grew up in Africa. He grew up mm-hmm. as a missionary kid in Africa. And we, we, a lot of stories about shared experiences. So I would bounce observations off him and he would basically say, yeah, mm-hmm. it's the same. You know, it was the same when I went to missionary kid boarding school in a different country from where my parents were. It's the same when, you know, the spiritual expectations on the missionary kid in this town or in this church, because, oh, yeah. because there's a spotlight on the foreign missionary, just like there is on the senior pastor. And so I learned a lot from him about that. And realized that I think so his his struggle or or efforts to find an identity in Christ and mine coming from two very different contexts were were so strikingly similar. And I think for me, and I can't I can't give people like a step by step because because an encounter with Christ is relational. You know, it's not formulaic. Uh I can't give you the the A plus B equals perfect relationship with Christ. But I can tell you that for me, the thing that I had to do was essentially tear down or have that uh, torn 
all of the preconceived sort of preloaded understandings of Christ uh-huh. and come to a place of face-to-face encounter with Christ through scripture. Mm. Um, and that's not a thing that I could engineer. That's a thing that God brought about. So a combination of my hard-heartedness and sin being torn down, wise people in my life leading me to scripture, and then the Holy Spirit using scripture to reveal Christ to me, that's what it was for me. And, and that has been the grounding for me for the, you know, 10 years since that happened where I no longer am defined by my parents' ministry. It's still very influential in my life. You know, I haven't thrown them away and I certainly haven't thrown away so much of what they taught me, what they believe, but in terms of who I am and my relationship with Christ, if my dad was to throw it all away tomorrow, huh. I Christ is still Christ to me. He's not mm-hmm. John Piper's Christ. Right. Faith would stand. And yeah. I think that's what I think that's what a lot of missionary kids and pastors' kids don't have. They it, it, they have their parents' Christ, not Christ, and they're not the same thing, even if they're well taught and well described. Mm. That's that's powerful and that's crucial. And just to, we got a couple minutes left with you. Just to backtrack for for a quick second too, um, maybe it's the fact that we don't all have this. Uh, at least as much as we should, we don't all have as personal and as intimate relationship with Christ. And and for some people, they just have, <laughs> they either have their parents' uh, Christ or or they have um, your parents' Christ. Uh, in other <laughs> yeah. words, yeah. they they don't have they don't have their dads. I'm not the only one who has John Piper's Christ, apparently. Right, sure. exactly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so if if that's you, um, you know, and if your engagement with God is, you know, debating theology on a Facebook group or something like that, um, is that a reason? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But do you think that's a reason that, honestly, there's so relatively few, at least it feels like, voices in the Reformed-ish community talking about missions, talking about sacrificing and going? Because they're not willing to risk, they don't have a real Christ, and I'm not throwing you know myself under the bus in there too. Because you know I I fall into the influence of of a lot of yeah. of that, but but there there seems to be this chasm here between just talking a big game about theology and, mm. and going and putting yeah. putting um, yeah. boots on the ground. There's yeah, there's definitely a, a gap between what is said and what is done. Um, you see it in missions giving. You see it in missions going. There's a lot of, I mean, there's been an emphasis on church planting and things like that, but to be fair, as much love as church planters get relative, if you're church planting in the same general culture you're in, it's a pretty low risk maneuver. Um, And it's also sort of the, the cool ministry now, like church planters are the cool pastors. So kind of low risk from a reputation and, um, and ministry standpoint, relatively speaking, that is not to disparage church planters. I, when I take a step back and look at it, I think that there's a, there's a historic aspect to it. I think missions usually rises and peaks with some sort of revival. And I don't, I'm not, I don't want to dig into what that means because people have different notions of revival, but a move of God, a movement of God to raise people up. Um, and I think those things happen. There's ebbs and flows between them. 
And we're definitely in what feels like an ebb right now. But here's another thing that I need to, that, that, I mean, I feel, I feel guilty about it even as I'm saying this. I say that from a very American perspective, because what God is doing in the rest of the world right. is not at all reflective of what we're talking about. Right. Mm, yeah. In terms of the movement of God in raising up church leaders and missionaries in South America, in Asia, in Africa, in parts of the world that historically Americans felt like we need to go to those people. Maybe those people need to go to us. I don't know. And they probably don't have the same theology and practice dichotomy that we're talking about here either. They're like, what are you talking about? These things are hand in glove. Right. Well, and, and we in the American church are going to be skeptical of them because we're going to say, Ooh, not enough seminary training. Ooh, don't have all five points of Calvinism. Ooh, whatever. And, and so we fail to acknowledge God's work there because it doesn't look like, what we think God's work ought to look like. And that's a risk we run. It's not a blanket statement. I don't want to paint with a too broad a brush, but we definitely are very American centric and do not recognize the raising up of, of, of missionaries and workers going into the harvest to use a biblical phrase all across the world. Even if we are in sort of a languishing dry period in the United States. Yeah, that's a powerful thought, and uh, and, and so true. Um, and, and I realize we're running out of time here tonight, today, and and um, today, tonight, <laughs> tomorrow. And whenever uh, you're listening, we're running out of time. <laughs> right, that's true. People can listen whenever they want. But if you were just to give one piece of advice, um, you know, whether that's to uh, a parent that's listening to this, or or a, a ministry kid who's who's trying to get a, get a a foothold on their faith. Um, maybe you could just leave with one one piece of advice uh, for the parent and for the child uh, who's growing up in a ministry setting. Um, I think for a parent, and I, I say this as a parent, so this is the thing that I try to rest in every day, is your kids need to see more of Christ in you and hear. I don't know that they need to hear less, but they need to see more than mm-hmm. they hear. Mm-hmm. Um just thinking about how easy it is to dis- to talk theology, to give teaching, but how hard it is to repent and how hard it is to show a need for grace and how hard it is to talk about failures and how Christ has healed you and restored you. Uh, those are things that kids need. And even if it feels like it's an awkward or hard conversation, like kids are profoundly resilient and gracious. Dude, stop convicting so, me right now. Come on, stop it. <laughs> stop it. This is... This is the thing I'm perpetually convicted about. So join the club um, for kids in a ministry context. Um, I think it, it does just come back around to go look for Jesus in scripture. Look for, look for Jesus, not Sunday school lessons, not flannel graphs, not five points of theology, not Wayne Grudem systematic theology, not John Piper's theology, just Jesus, how Jesus interacts with broken people, how mm. Jesus interacts with religious leaders, how Jesus interacts with, sinners, what Jesus says his mission was like, these, these are the essence of, of what we need. We don't, everything else that happens surrounding that can be a distraction, even if it's a good thing. So just go there and, and see if the Jesus that you find on those pages is the same one you think you believe in. Mm. Bottom line, ministry kids need Jesus, just like the rest of us. And thank God he's available for us. Barnabas, how can people get more of you if they want to read your books, uh, your blog, uh, anything? 
Uh, they, the easiest way is just go to BarnabasPiper.com. You can find podcasts there. You can find books there, speaking engagements there, all of it. Um, and then I'm on Twitter at Barnabas Piper. I like interacting with people on Twitter, not just shooting things out for other people to read because I think I'm brilliant. I occasionally am brilliant, but that's, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> um, <laughs> so Twitter, Twitter and then BarnabasPiper.com are probably the two best places. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us here today. We really appreciate you taking some time out of your schedule. And um, I don't know whether to call you Barnabas or Big P or Pipe, because it seems like you don't get the same nicknames that the other guys on the rant get. But uh, we'll just uh, say thanks for joining us, Pipe. Man, I've had fun being on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much. I know you're a busy guy. Appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for joining us on the Missions Podcast. If you want to get more great content on theology, missions, and practice, go to missionspodcast.com. And while you're there, make sure that you subscribe in iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite listening platform. And please make sure that you also give us an honest review and a five-star rating. And please don't forget to be sending your questions to alex at missionspodcast.com, along with any other ideas for future episodes. And until next time, thank you for joining us.